Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Russell Stevenson, and today we have Elizabeth Keene from the LDS Church History Library here with us in the studio to talk about the Kirtland Safety Society. Thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. Elizabeth has a master's degree in American history from Purdue University and is currently a PhD candidate at the University of California, Irvine, studying American history. You've done some extensive archival research on the Kirtland Safety Society, you know, over the course of the past few years. And I'm curious about what is the latest and the most compelling research that's being done on this subject? So unfortunately, we don't have that many extant documents relating to the Safety Society. One of the key records is a stock ledger that's in the possession of the Chicago History Museum. And we recently got high-res images of this. Working with those high-res images, we can make kind of conclusions and extrapolate a lot more data than previous studies have been able to to do and kind of resolve some of the assumptions that were made based on using microfilm, based on not referencing the primary documents at all. And one of the things that I've worked particularly on is essentially tabulating the income and the accounting kind of on, on a larger scale for what this stock ledger tells us about when the society is getting species, when people are paying for their stock, and when they stop paying for it. There are some early kind of BYU studies articles in the 70s that approach this literature, but I hope that we've gone a little bit farther in Documents Volume 5. Elizabeth, one of the major questions that Latter-day Saints have about the Kirtland Safety Society ultimately is, what is it, right? That's a term that we don't tend to use in 21st century financial parlance. It can confuse a lot of people. So how about let's start with the pretty basic level definition of what it was. Absolutely. So fundamentally, the Kirtland Safety Society is a bank. It's established as a bank in November of 1836. They write a banking constitution to create this bank. And then come January, they're facing some problems, and they decide to restructure it. It's at that point that we introduce the somewhat cumbersome name of Kirtland Safety Society Anti-Banking Company. Now, when you say they, you're referring to Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, who else? Yes, so Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon are elected the officers, but we know that there were around 100 stockholders from mostly the Kirtland area, mostly members of the church that have paid or at least subscribed to purchase stock in this bank. Any of these kinds of developments, like building institutions, building churches, building banks, it tends to take place in a particular time and a particular context. Talk to us a little bit about the nature of these kinds of financial institutions uh, during the early 19th century. Kirtland... And the bank that they hope to establish there is very much in the vein of kind of frontier community banking. This is a key feature of kind of 19th century banking. You have the more established banking houses in New York and New Orleans that are doing kind of transatlantic levels of trade. And then on the other hand, you have these very, very small community banks. Some of these will grow larger with Eastern investment, but you have a sizable number that are just very small, very local and very unique to a particularly kind of rough frontier, cash-strapped kind of western edge of the United States. And how are some of these local institutions seen by the major banking houses? 
So the major banking houses didn't interact much with these kind of smaller level ones, except if they were interested in kind of purchasing them and creating a branch or a sister bank kind of maybe in Michigan or Ohio or somewhere where they can kind of establish further trade relations. Were there any kinds of conflicts or competitions between some of these local banks and the major banks? Absolutely. The Commercial Bank of Lake Erie, which is kind of the most sizable bank in northeastern Ohio and the closest really well-established bank for the Saints in Kirtland, goes through what Eric Schreiber calls a deliberate warfare between these smaller banks, where they're essentially trying to gather the notes of these banks at a discounted rate, so at less than par, and then redeem them at par and take specie away from their competition, essentially. Now, you're mentioning notes, you're mentioning specie. I mean, according to the U.S. Constitution, only the United States Congress has the right and authority to print specie. So what was the role of these notes within the local Kirtland economy? So these notes are kind of a stopgap measure for a lack of currency. Andrew Jackson had decided to veto or suspend the charter for the Second Bank of the United States, and with this decision, essentially eliminated a printed federal currency. And so you see smaller-scale banks kind of fill this void. It's not technically federal currency, but it's circulating in the place of currency. Okay, so it's serving as currency, even if it is not in fact currency. People treat it as currency. Right. They respect it as currency, but legally, it's not. Right. And there's a further distinction for the notes of the Kirtland Safety Society because it's an unincorporated or unauthorized bank. So it doesn't have the backing of the state legislature to essentially authorize banking privileges. Now, as I understand it, I mean, sometimes there were some sweetheart deals between some of these major banking houses and state governments. Would you tell us more about that? Yeah, we know that there's a lot of corruption and a lot of kind of bribery and, as you said, sweetheart deals going on between banks and governments. Andrew Jackson himself engages in this as he removes the charter and thus the Second Bank of the United States. We get something that historians often refer to as pet banks, where he's selecting individual banks throughout the country to deposit federal funds in. And the banks sometimes even themselves end up providing revenue for the functioning of the state government. Absolutely. Quite a number of banks, particularly these Western kind of frontier states, have state banks or banks that hold the state's revenue. You said that the Kirtland Safety Society was unincorporated and not authorized by the state legislature. What kinds of problems did that present for the Kirtland Safety Society? It's a problem of legitimacy because there's this question of how are they funded? Are they one of these kind of wildcat banks that will take your money and run? Or are they more legitimate? And Ohio in particular had done a lot of chartering of banks in the early 1830s. By the time we get to the mid-1830s, the state legislature is less inclined to give even more charters out. They're actually trying to figure out how to deal with these banknotes that are circulating often unregulated. And so there's this kind of scaling back. In the legislative session that the Kirtland Safety Society tries to petition for a charter, no banks are allowed a charter. And while we do get a sense that there is some degree of religious prejudice when they come before the legislature and they are having a very difficult time kind of finding a politician to represent them, there is a sense that the state of Ohio has just kind of eliminated the desire to charter for a while. 
trying to kind of step into that time and place. You're Joseph Smith. You're trying to set up this Kirtland Safety Society, and the environment is so hostile. Like, what, what do you think was going through his head? What kinds of precedents was he maybe drawing upon? There's this common precedent, and we don't know whether or not Joseph Smith was aware of it, but probably he knew something about it. In Ohio in particular, you get a form of quasi-banking. And this is where institutions like insurance companies or canal companies, another kind of institution that has to be chartered before the legislature, will tack on a clause that says, and we'd like banking privileges. And often they're chartered. The banking aspect may or may not be part of that initial charter. They might tack it on later. But in this quasi-banking sense, they're able to function as a bank, even though they aren't actually kind of solely a bank. And so when he forms the Kirtland Safety Society, it's possible that he's going in that direction. It's also possible that he's drawing on the example of earlier banks. There's one in Mount Vernon, Ohio, called the Owl Creek Bank in 1816, which is a little bit earlier in a slightly different kind of economic context. The Owl Creek Bank is denied a charter by the legislature. The citizens of Mount Vernon decide to come together and say, well, we won't approve of this kind of denial of our charter. We have this right, and we're going to move forward with this bank as a bank. And in the end, they prove their legitimacy and are able to be chartered several years later. It's possible that Joseph had something like that in mind. You've talked about these different possibilities that Joseph Smith was considering. Now, when Joseph Smith established the Kirtland Safety Society, did he imagine it as a bank or more as something else, maybe like a joint stock company or a a different kind of institution? So the initial idea is definitely a bank. Everything in 1836 points to establishing a bank. The constitution that they write and ratify in November says bank. And this idea of a joint stock company kind of comes in with this question of, their January 1837 restructuring. And we don't know exactly what they intended with this restructuring. They call it a banking company. Now, in Ohio, a banking company was essentially synonymous with bank. So it's possible that even there, they're just kind of trying to find a workaround to create a, like an unauthorized bank. And that's, that's kind of what they seem to be doing. In all of their kind of legal records after this point, they still tend to use the term bank. And in all the reminiscent accounts from individuals in Kirtland, they call it the bank as well. It sounds like it's in this sort of gray area where nobody really knows what it is. Absolutely. It's very much in this kind of extra legal area that I think Joseph and the other saints were aware that it it was very rarely enforced, that this wasn't something that the state had really a hand in regulating. And so even if they were kind of functioning outside the limits of what the legislature had approved— there was very little chance of them kind of being brought up on charges. Now, of course, they are brought up on charges because of one of our favorite anti-Mormons of Northeastern Ohio, Grandison Newell, who is really this intense antagonist for the saints. I would imagine, you know, as Joseph Smith is making these kinds of decisions, that he at least has some sense of how the institution may be vulnerable, right, to some of these kinds of charges. I mean, do we have any evidence of that? We have very limited evidence. There is a really interesting, like, third-hand account in records that are taken from witness statements at a trial in the summer of 1837. This is a trial where Grandison Newell had accused Joseph Smith of trying to assassinate him. And so there's this broad array of witnesses that are brought in. 
And Orson Hyde, in his testimony, says that he and Joseph and several other men were in the bank. And in this instance, they were talking about the statutes and kind of the legal parameters in Ohio. And Hyde says that Joseph said, essentially, that he was aware of this statute and that he didn't think anyone would bring charges against them except for Grandison Newell. And of course, pertaining to the kind of criminal charge, Hyde says that Joseph then alludes that someone should take care of him. Mm. Um, And so that's kind of used to maybe, in terms of the witness statement for the criminal trial, suggest that Joseph wanted someone to take care of Grandison Newell. Now, throughout the trial, the judge throws it out, says that there's no grounds for this, and Joseph has let off without any charges. But there are these kind of interesting moments where you see the bank as kind of this gathering point for the community, as well as Joseph being aware of kind of the limitations of the bank. Now, the following year, Hyde ends up going through his own kind of apostasy. Right. You know, he he begins making statements regarding uh, Joseph Smith's intentions and the intentions of the Latter-day Saints in Missouri. Is there any possibility that we're seeing a predecessor to that apostasy at this time in 1837? Possibly. Hyde also walks in on the kind of setting apart blessing for Heber C. Kimball and the mission to England. And in the manuscript history of the church, he tells, or it's at least written from his perspective, that his heart was softened. So there seems to be some kind of antagonism, some kind of tension between Hyde and Joseph during this summer, as there are with several other members of the Twelve. Certainly. So who exactly was behind the lawsuit regarding Joseph Smith's Kirtland Safety Society? Was it Grandison Newell? Was it somebody else? Grandison Newell doesn't actually bring the charge. He has a man named Samuel Rounds. Essentially, it appears that he brings the charge for Newell. We don't have any concrete documentation that Newell is behind Rounds bringing the charge, but everything later on suggests that Newell had coerced or maybe bribed Rounds into bringing this charge. And one of the reasons why Newell may not be the one bringing this charge himself is because he would be liable under the same statute for prosecution because he had dealt in the note. What ultimately became of of this lawsuit? The charges are initially brought against uh, Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, Newell K. Whitney, Warren Parrish, Frederick G. Williams, and Horace Kingsbury. Kingsbury, Williams, and Whitney had all acted as pro tempore officers in kind of the earliest moments of the bank and kind of the first week of its operation in January. And they're essentially let off the hook. And Parrish himself is also not brought on trial for various reasons. And and one of those reasons may be that Rounds knew, or Grandison Newell coercing Rounds, knew that Joseph and Sidney had been elected officers and were the ones who most prominently signed the notes. And so there was a stronger case against them. So you say there was a stronger case against them. Was that primarily the motivation, or was there some potential political or even religious issues uh, undergirding this? So there are definitely political issues. Grandis Knoll is kind of doing everything he can to destabilize the Kirtland Safety Society Bank and to really kind of get people to question its legitimacy. It was already rocky without a charter. It's suggested in reminiscent accounts that he was establishing runs on the bank to drain its species. We have one or two accounts of that and and probable times that he might have done that. And then yet this lawsuit is kind of another way to attack legitimacy of the bank. During this time, we also see tremendous Ohio land boom. 
Um, yeah. You know, prices in, in land are going through the roof, right? It's worth much, much more. It increases by incredible degrees between 1830 and 1836. What role did that play in all of this? I mean, was that a symptom of something? Did that cause uh, certain developments? The inflation is staggering. It's also a real difficulty for the Kirtland Saints because you have a lot of growth in Kirtland from 1835 to 1837. It's just phenomenal growth in Kirtland. The population almost doubles. And most of that are converts to Mormonism who are are gathering to Kirtland. And so you see these new converts, often who have used all their resources to get to Kirtland, that then face these exaggerated inflated prices Interestingly enough, in the fall of 1836, one thing that Joseph did in trying to kind of establish the church business-wise was purchase a significant amount of land. He purchases around 400 acres, mostly on promissory notes and loans and promises of later payment. This large amount of land, we think it served kind of dual purposes in that the saints could then buy the land from Joseph at a much lower rate rather than the highly inflated rate of the kind of surrounding area. And it also served probably as collateral for the bank, security for the banknotes. And typically when you see a profound inflation, it's because of an influx of currency or an influx of specie. Could you walk us through that as well? Sure. In 1836, Andrew Jackson had signed into law a law called the Species Circular. And this required specie payments or payments in gold and silver coins for all purchases of government land. And before this law went into effect, people could use these kind of spurious banknotes. They could use other loans and other means of less legitimate, less solid means of acquiring land, which was driving up the inflation because there was such high demand. When you're dealing with all this currency, it doesn't necessarily have any kind of grounding or legitimacy. They have less confidence in it, so therefore they demand more of it. Is that a a fair conclusion? I think that is, yeah. You mentioned earlier that many of the people who helped to form the Kirtland Safety Society were Latter-day Saints, but there were some who were not Latter-day Saints. How about you tell us about those who were not Latter-day Saints and why they would have invested in this institution that was developed by people who were seen as religious radicals? Yeah, it's really interesting. We don't have really good records for that many stockholders. There are some that appear to possibly be merchants in the area that maybe are buying in for economic reasons. One of the largely anti-Mormon papers comments on, you know, they're highly skeptical of the Mormon bank, but at the same time, they say this could be a real benefit to this area because we need more specie. We need this kind of economic stability that a bank will bring. And so there is this kind of reluctant admittance that it could be useful even if it is these religious radicals who say they see angels and have all of these visionary experiences. So everyone's kind of wary, and there's a great deal of religious prejudice in the press. But at the same time, there's also this kind of acknowledgement that a growing community the size of Kirtland was really kind of ripe for a bank and that the area needed one. We've established the economic context, right? The, The Kirtland Safety Society, they were already on kind of shaky ground. They were a quasi-banking institution at best. They did not enjoy state legitimacy. Many people saw their notes as being potentially spurious, not necessarily grounded in specie. Eventually, the Kirtland Safety Society collapses. How about you walk us through the Kirtland Society at its high point, if there was such a point, to its low point? 
its highest point is probably when they open an office, and that happens in kind of early January of 1837. And that's when we see, and the only records we have, of loans being made. You get this idea that it is functioning in the way that Joseph had hoped in really helping the economy, helping provide the funds that the saints need to create businesses or build homes or do these kind of things that he saw to really create a gathering place for the saints. Of course, by the end of that month, the last few weeks of January, there's a closure. And this closure is written up in Cleveland as a failure of the bank. And so some accounts are circulated that it fails less than a month into its existence. It's only a 24-hour closure, as best as we can find. Wilfred Woodruff in his journal says that they have threats from northeastern Ohio, the kind of mentor Painesville area of a mob coming to destroy their bank. And then Cleveland Papers, one of the Cleveland Papers that's sympathetic to the Saints, kind of depicts this mob that attacks the bank. We don't know if this is kind of a figment of that editor's imagination or if this is actually based in kind of a real account. But there's some kind of threat, and it closes very briefly. Right after this closure, Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, Hiram Smith, and Oliver Cowdery will go to Michigan and form some type of agreement, some type of partnership with the Bank of Monroe in Michigan. And there's very little documentation for that, so it's really hard to tell exactly what they're doing. But Oliver Cowdery is put on the board of directors for that bank, and there seems to be some kind of alliance between the two institutions. Would it be maybe a kind of a bailout? It's possible that they were looking at functioning under the charter that the Bank of Monroe had and kind of acting as a branch of that bank in Ohio. It's not clear if they understood all of the technicalities of interstate uh, (laughs) chartering and banking. It's also possible that they were just kind of forming an alliance with another bank that would kind of have their back in terms of specie and in terms of kind of legitimacy to say, look, this bank that does have a charter is backing us. That doesn't end up panning out all that well, and the Bank of Monroe actually closes by April and fails, possibly because of the loans that they give the Kirtland Safety Society that are not repaid. It's hard to tell exactly what causes it, but that's definitely a factor. And then Oliver Cowdery leaves Michigan and returns to Kirtland and is residing in Kirtland by April. So it's a pretty short-lived kind of stint. It's also in March that Joseph sends Brigham Young and Willard Richards East on a financial or business mission. We don't know the full details of this mission, but it appears that they're trying to kind of bargain with creditors for the stores and maybe even get kind of donations or funding for the bank. So this is kind of a a rocky time. And then with the panic of 1837 in early May of 1837, you see the economy really bottom out and really create problems. This is when banks across the nation will suspend specie redemption. And the Kirtland Safety Society actually seems to continue a little bit beyond the point that the authorized and legislated approved banks do. By June, Joseph is kind of reading the signs of the times, and we know that he seems to want to close the bank before it fails. The bank directors decide that that's not what they want to do. So Joseph and Sidney step down as elected officials and are replaced by Frederick G. Williams and Warren Parrish, both of whom were disaffected from the church at this time. So we kind of see that playing into some of of the frustrations here. 
So Joseph has distanced himself by June and July of 1837. And that's also when he sells his stock in the bank. Now, why did Frederick T. Williams and Warren Parrish want to continue the safety society when it was pretty clear that it was looking unstable? I think they have this idea that maybe they can make it successful, that maybe if you just try a little bit harder, you'll make some money. None of them took Joseph seriously as a financier. I think there are a lot of doubts about his kind of temporal abilities and if he's led the church in in ways that make sense economically. And of course, you'd had this sense of almost a failure of his prophecies for Kirtland. You know, he'd really depicted it, according to Wilfred Woodruff, as what would become like a grand city and a city where that would be very kind of well-established in trade and had really encouraged the saints to invest in the city. And of course, then you have the Panic of 1837, where unfortunately, it's a complete reversal of that. When we talk about the Panic of 1837 and we talk about bank panics, the way that you know, many 21st century Americans visualize that, especially when we're talking about bank panics of, you know, of times past before the internet and digital age, we think of It's a Wonderful Life. George Bailey, he has a savings and loan company and all these people run into the bank and they want to withdraw their money. And he says, well, you know, you know you, your money's in this person's home and your money's in this person's home. How about you walk us through what this looked like within the Latter-day Saint context in Kirtland? The interesting thing about the Kirtland Safety Society is it's not a deposit bank. So it doesn't have that wonderful life connection because it isn't actually my money in your home, right? It's funded based on shareholders or on equity. So it's stockholders who have subscribed for stock and are essentially slowly paying for that stock. And that's the funding for the bank. The bank exists because John Johnson and Oliver Cowdery and Emma Smith have all paid a portion for the stock of that bank. And that's why some people tend to argue that it is as much a joint stock company as it is a bank. It has been argued that it was a joint stock company. And with the shift in kind of this company rhetoric of the organizing documents in January, it's possible that they're going in that direction. But all 19th century banks essentially did hold stock jointly. So it's kind of a distinction without a real difference in that a bank should have stock held jointly, and they they seem to want to run it as this quasi-bank. So it's possible that it functioned as a joint stock company, but most banks did. So saying that it's a joint stock company versus a bank, it's not really a meaningful distinction, as you say. Not historically. It has been used in other arguments to kind of justify why Joseph maybe should not have been brought up on the statutes that are used against him to form that lawsuit because he was running a company and not a bank. Those statutes also kind of clearly say that any institution that's issuing bills will be considered a bank regardless of what it calls itself. The Kirtland Safety Society falls apart in about summer of 1837. Right. And this causes a massive, you know, at least to use the 21st century parlance, faith crisis uh, within the Latter-day Saint community. But what was the nature of this faith crisis? Who were the people who were leading the charge? Who were the people who were most vocal in their criticism about Joseph Smith? And who were those who were the most staunchly defensive of Joseph Smith? And how did they defend him? The faith crisis seems to center on a lot of kind of individual issues that people had with Joseph. Financial concerns are a huge part of this. And and that kind of failure of prophecy that we mentioned before, where so many people had kind of invested a great deal, and I think invested a lot of hope and optimism and ambition in this kind of dream of a Kirtland that is a stake of Zion, this great gathering place. 
what they get in the end is actually loans that are being called in and land that they can't sell and other kind of economic issues. Parley P. Pratt is kind of one of the first to put his frustrations into writing. He writes kind of an attack letter to Joseph in late May where he accuses Joseph of kind of using his position as church leader to benefit himself and of kind of encouraging the saints towards speculation, even accuses him of extortion. One of the kind of core points of Pratt's letter is this idea that he had purchased land from Joseph and that Joseph had promised him that he wouldn't be financially injured by this. It would be to his benefit I think in in fairly dire financial straits himself, Joseph turns over this promissory note, probably, that Pratt had given him to pay for this land to the Kirtland Safety Society Bank. And then the bank, represented by Sidney Rigdon, comes to Pratt saying, if you can't pay this, we'll take your land and we'll take the house that you built on this land. That's kind of the situation facing Pratt. He could lose his home. He could lose his land. He could lose all that he had kind of hoped for in this kind of growing community of, of Kirtland. He understandably lashes out at Joseph and says, you know, you've led us all astray. Warren Parrish is kind of the first to talk about Joseph as a false or fallen prophet, I think largely tied to this idea of a failed prophecy. You told us we were going to be prosperous, and instead we got the Panic of 1837 and economic collapse. You know, it went opposite to what you were saying. There's also this sense of frustration with the control that Joseph has and and the hierarchy of the church that he's creating. Several feel that they don't have the places they deserve. Warren Parrish seems to chafe under that as well. You know, he had been Joseph's right-hand man. He'd been a scribe. Joseph had spoken very fondly of Parrish in 1835, calling him my beloved scribe. And yet by 1837, we see a Parrish that is very distant from Joseph and kind of very aggressively calling him a liar, calling him a fallen prophet. And so it's hard to unpack all of the reasons for this, but I think a lot of it comes down to their expectations of Joseph Smith as a prophet. There seems to be this expectation that he should have known that the economic collapse was coming, that he should have had this kind of foreknowledge and been able to warn them rather than lead them down a path that would actually be even worse in the long run. Tell me then about those who were Joseph Smith's defenders. Absolutely. So Joseph actually does something really interesting in sending Heber C. Kimball, who is one of his defenders, to England on a mission. He loses both Heber C. Kimball and Willard Richards, two men who had been very valiant towards the church, kind of very much supporters of him, and he sends them off to proselyte in Great Britain. He does, however, keep Brigham Young by his side. And we know that Brigham is a staunch defender of Joseph and will even defend him years and years later through discourses that he gives as a prophet of the church in Utah, where he talks about, you know, Joseph's generosity, as well as his kind of reluctance to really kind of exercise the extent of his ability, either in kind of this this banking sense or this mercantile sense, to say, you owe me, I'm taking you to court. We never see Joseph litigate on any of the debts that his family or close friends had against his institutions, whether it be his store or the Kirtland Safety Society Bank, or as cashier of that store, it was well within his right to take every single stockholder who had failed to pay the expected amount to court to get that income. 
he didn't pursue his own interests as aggressively or as vigorously as he could have, according to the law. Absolutely. Yeah. So what kinds of arguments did Brigham Young use to defend Joseph Smith? One of the arguments that he uses, and this is hard to set, and it could either be referring to Kurland or Nauvoo, but he talks about how Joseph as a merchant would have people come in and ask for goods and often not be able to pay for those goods. And rather than denying them those goods, he would give them at even loss to himself for fear that by being kind of very strict and very hard, he would lose people as followers, that they would turn away from a really kind of draconian or even cruel mercantile demeanor. Brigham Young once publicly said, I am very well aware of Joseph Smith's deficiencies right. you know, as, a, as a man of temporal affairs. Right. It's clear that Brigham Young, I mean, he was aware of Joseph Smith's weakness. He was aware that Joseph Smith really didn't know what he was doing when it came to business. So how did he work through that? I think he and several others are able to say, I will follow him. I have a testimony of him as a prophet, and these temporal manners are of less importance to me. I can move past them. These aren't going to be the thing that break me. And you see, that's interesting to me because if you look at— the law of consecration being applied in you know, in Independence, Missouri, that law was very temporally based. It had to do with the giving and exchanging and using of land. There was no way to separate Joseph Smith's law in that regard from temporal affairs. And yet here you are in Kirtland doing just that. Say, okay, there's Joseph Smith the prophet and there's Joseph Smith the financier, the banker, and the rather deficient guardian of temporal affairs. Are you seeing the contrast that, that I am? I don't think it's quite as distinct as that. I don't know if in being able to move forward from kind of these failed financial prophecies and other things that they're thinking of Joseph in these two very separate roles. We know that some dissenters, Joseph Coe, for example, essentially says, I think I'd be better at the temporal affairs than Joseph would be. We know that Joseph and a lot of the others who are involved in the bank have very little banking knowledge or experience. And so they are really kind of at a deficit. But at the same time, I think you have a lot of kind of silent kind of acceptance of Joseph's limitations and a willingness to try out this hopeful venture and then kind of a willingness to say, okay, it didn't work. Wilford Woodruff is kind of one of the great examples of this. He puts in $5 and pays for stock. And then in May, when things aren't looking very good, rather than kind of raising all of these objections to Joseph, he just says, can I have my $5 back? Withdraws it, goes on his merry way. And there's no like faith crisis for him. Interesting. Is it correct, then, that Joseph Smith prophesied that the Kirtland Safety Society would be successful? It's a really interesting question, and technically, he did not. Wilfred Woodruff records in his journal that on kind of the first day that the notes were available and exchanged, that Joseph had said that he had a revelation that the bank would be successful if executed on righteous principles. Later, when John F. Boynton will bring up this very question of, well, the bank was founded on Revelation, how could it fail? Joseph will correct him in the meeting on 3 September 1837 and say, I never said that. I said that it had to be conducted on righteous principles, and it was not. And so there is this sense that he's not only defending the failure of the bank, but also kind of limiting the revelation. This isn't a continuation of the United Firm. This isn't something that we have a revelation laying out exactly what they should do. It seems more as if 
he's receiving direction to try something out, or he and Sidney Rigdon and others have said, a bank looks really promising, let's move forward with this. And you kind of get the revelation after the fact saying, okay, this is what you want to try. Try it. If you function in the way that it's supposed to, it can be successful. So Joseph Smith says it was not governed on righteous principles. Was he implicating himself? I mean, he was kind of heading up the thing. I mean, was he admitting his own unrighteousness? It's possible that he's acknowledging some faults, that he doesn't make that clear in those three September meetings. It's also possible that he's pointing to mismanagement by Warren Parrish. Parrish was doing something untoward. Heber C. Kimball later suggests that he was kind of doctoring the books. Brigham Young, in accounts, suggests that Parrish is putting used notes back into circulation, probably under his own name, using notes that had been paid off, and then recirculating those. So Parrish is accused of doing a lot of kind of disingenuous things. We don't have good documentation for any of those. But it's possible that he's kind of pointing the finger at Parrish, who took over after him in the June-July 1837 period, and ultimately is the one to collapse the bank. So when you say we know he was doing something untoward, do we know that based on the comments of Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball, both of whom were some of Joseph Smith's closest advocates? It does seem to be solely from them. Samuel Whitney, Newell K. Whitney's brother, who is no supporter of the church, also in his kind of later discussions about the bank with Newell, suggests that Parrish is actively still trying to change the names on the bank books. So that's a less kind of close to Joseph's source to suggest that Parrish is manipulating facts. So what would you say the applicability is of this incident to 21st century Mormonism? There are a couple things. One, I think we need to understand the Kirtland Safety Society in the context that it existed. Oftentimes, it's presented as this kind of weird or reckless endeavor when actually it's kind of born out of ambition and it makes a lot of sense for them to try. Even their detractors note that it makes sense. Joseph tries it and it fails. He's disappointed by this, but it doesn't consume him. He's able to move on. Many others are able to move on. Joseph Young will later in Utah call this kind of a stumbling block for the saints, a moment where they have to decide whether or not Joseph is a prophet, whether or not they will follow him. And I think for me, that's the larger takeaway is this question of what are the expectations of a prophet and kind of looking closely at this period of descent, this period of faith crisis, and these questions of where do you draw your lines? How do you voice your disagreements? We see kind of many different examples of this across the spectrum with the Kirtland Saints from Parley P. Pratt, who comes out really strong and angry and then is one of the most repentant. And then you have kind of the quiet acceptance of Wilford Woodruff, the staunch acceptance of Brigham Young, who kind of realizes maybe some of the shortcomings but is able to move forward. And then I think you also get some really nice recognition in the letters of the late Kimball, where she recognizes what the dissenters are kind of feeling and experiencing. They feel betrayed. They feel this sense of they're not being necessarily heard. They're not being part of the decision-making process that they want to be part of. And she says, you know, I, I feel a lot of sympathy and pity for them, but the Lord requires his people to be chastened. And that's kind of where she ends it, with this expectation of you kind of have to get in line with the prophet if you're going to continue with the saints. Excellent. I think those are all very interesting and, uh, and compelling 
angles to this rather complicated issue, right? I mean, it's a it's an issue that deals with specie and 1830s finance laws and bank vetoes and and all of these things that feel so distant and separate from the world that we know now today. But as we know, when we're studying history, that like to some extent, we should be able to extract insight and and foresight from them as we both manage our day-to-day lives as well as as we manage our worldviews and our belief systems. In one of Truman G. Madsen's lectures, he commented in regards to the stock ledger and, and its discovery. He said, we can finally know that Joseph Smith was fundamentally an honest and upstanding man. Do you think that based on your rather extensive archival research of the subject, that his assessment is correct. Joseph loses more than any other individual in this endeavor. We don't have an exact amount, but it's at least $6,000, which is substantially more than any other stockholder. For those who want to frame this as fraud, for those who want to frame this as kind of Joseph using the bank for his own means, he loses substantially more than anyone else. And I think he's willing to tolerate that loss in this effort to help the saints and to use the bank for what he sees its needs for to help the church. Does he take efforts to repay those to whom he's indebted? We think so. There's not really great documentation for this. Oliver Granger and Jared Carter are the individuals who are almost put up as agents for the bank and stock is sold to them. And it appears that for the stock that's given to them, they are repaying those individuals for that stock. So say I transfer you two of my shares of stock, they would repay what you had paid me for that. There does seem to be some good faith kind of efforts on his part, but the laws of the state of Ohio also didn't require him after the bank had failed to make those kind of payments. Thanks so much for joining us, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. Be sure to check out LDSperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, They in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.